are moving through the Gospel of John. We are in chapter 2. So if you would open your copy of the Scriptures to John chapter 2. Our text this morning is verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars uh, there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone save the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Father, as we have read your word, and as I seek to proclaim it faithfully, help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ the transformer of souls, He who will transform our lowly bodies to make it uh, like His at the final resurrection when He sets all things in their proper order underneath His feet. We ask in His name. Amen. The Greek word for wine, alcoholic Fermented wine is the word oinos. And the word for wine here in John chapter 2 is oinos. In other words, there's no question that here at this wedding in Cana of Galilee that Jesus made alcoholic fermented wine. One has to twist the scripture to suggest otherwise. Unfortunately, it does not stop people from claiming that Jesus only made grape juice and not wine. But he made wine. It is shocking how commonly people distort God's Word to support their preconceived ideas. It's shocking how easily people do it. So I want to remind you, the Bible is God's Word. It is God's inerrant, inspired, and authoritative Word. God rules us by His Word. And so we must never stand over it as if we have the right to distort it for our own purposes. That being said, 
for the reminder that we are looking at God's Word. Let's examine uh, the text together. Verse 1 begins by saying it was the third day. Presumably this is the third day since Jesus arrived in Galilee. And so you will remember that Jesus met Andrew and Peter while he was down uh, by the Jordan River. And then uh, this would have been five days earlier. And then he came up to Galilee. There he met Philip and Nathaniel. So he's been with Andrew and Philip for five days, with uh, Philip and Nathaniel for four days. These new disciples have left everything to follow Jesus. And so they're just getting to know Him, even though, of course, Jesus had known them since before the foundation of the world. I'm assuming that Jesus left the Jordan River area where John was baptizing and headed up to Galilee uh, specifically to attend this wedding that is described in our passage. So Jesus' disciples are with Him and by necessity... Uh, They were invited with Him at the very last moment. So verses 1 and 2, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with His disciples. The wedding is obviously um, for a close relative of Jesus or a a friend, a close family friend, because Mary is serving as the banquet attendant. Uh, Mary, of course, being Jesus' mother, she seems to be responsible for providing the food and drinks. And so she's become very stressed because they have run out of wine. It'd be like running out of um, odors before everybody's been through the serving line uh, the first time. It could be potentially very embarrassing. So she came up to Jesus and she says to him, They have run out of wine. Now why did Mary come to Jesus and tell him that they've run out of wine? Well, maybe... She's blaming him for running out of wine since he has these four other guests that have been uh, invited with him at the last moment. I don't think that's the case. In fact, I, um, I know that that is not the case. So then maybe she wanted Jesus to go organize the servants, send the servants out to a neighbor's house or to the market to find some wine. Um, Well, again, this is possible, but I doubt it. I think actually, it seems to me that Mary um, believed that Jesus could take care of it by some other way other than by natural means. And I say this because of of the surprising response that Jesus gave to her. Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It appears to me that Jesus is telling her that it was not not yet time for Him to reveal His messianic identity by performing miracles. Now, that seems to be that's the best thing that uh, that I could see. The commentators uh, seem to confirm that. 
Uh, Jesus' response is not only surprising because it sounds like she's asking him to do a miracle, but also it's surprising because of the way he addresses her. Uh, this, this word woman might throw us uh, just a bit. He wasn't being rude. Woman, what does this have to do with me? That's not what he's doing. But rather, the Greek word uh, could be used as a very affectionate title in Jewish culture. The Greek word is gune. Uh, I would not recommend that you, any of you address your mothers as gune. It sounds a little like goon. Um, it might not convey the intended affection, especially with Mother's Day coming up and you, you tell your mother, Happy Goon-A Day. It would kind of probably uh, get you in more trouble than, um, than affection. Also, Jesus' response is uh, surprising because he seems like he doesn't want to obey her. Uh, so what is he saying by telling her essentially, essentially no? I think Jesus is telling Mary that it was not his purpose in living here on earth to cater weddings. His purpose was so important. His purpose in being here on earth was so focused that he was unwilling to be distracted. And we know Jesus' purpose. I was just talking with the children about it a few moments ago. Jesus came here not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. He came to seek and to save the lost. In other words, although providing wine for a wedding feast to relieve His mother's stress was a good thing, He was unwilling to be distracted from the best and most important uh, thing that He was called here to do. I love Mary's response, verse 5. She uh, ignored his protest and pulled parental rank. This is very instructive for us, especially for our children, because we see that Jesus obeyed his parents. It also puts on full display Christ's humanity and his hypostatic union, the fact that he is God and man forever in one person. Uh, because we see here that God obeyed His mother. Now, since Mama has spoken, and that was the final word, Jesus decided to use the occasion as a, as a teaching lesson for His new disciples. Remember, He's got these, these new disciples with Him. They're still getting to know each other. Uh, they know Him to be the Messiah. They know Him to be the Son of God. Nathaniel has already confessed this. And Jesus confirmed His confession. But they're still getting to know Him. Still getting to understand why He came here to earth. So He uses this as an object lesson. Uh, the six stone water jars were really, really big. They weren't small little jars. We think of jars and we think of something smaller. These jars held 20 to 30 gallons each. And so Jesus instructed the, the, the servants to fill up these six jars, each holding 20 to 30 uh, gallons, uh, to fill them up to the brim with water. So all told, 
Jesus created 150 gallons of wine. And He had told the servants to fill these jars with water so that there could be no doubt about the reality of the miracle. It wasn't that it was a mistake. Oh, well, they thought there was water in here, but really there was wine. No, the servants came. They filled these water jars up with water. They saw for themselves that it was only water. So there's no doubt about the reality of the miracle. And then He tells these servants, take the wine um, to the master of the feast. This wine had been transferred, I mean, transformed completely from one property into another. From, wine, from water into wine. This is descriptive of our salvation. We have been completely transformed from one estate into another. We have been brought from death to life. We have been transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. Whereas we were children of Satan, we have been transferred into the kingdom of God. We have been transferred, transformed into children of God. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And because you are a new creation, transformed by Christ, you can, in fact, you will live a new life. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Alan, to begin uh, his prayer, quoted from the last part of Romans 6. I want to direct your attention to the first part of Romans 6. And I want to try and drive this point home that you are a new creation and that because you have been transformed, you can and you will live a new life. In Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul asks a rhetorical question. He says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And of course the answer is, by no means. And then he asks this uh, second rhetorical question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, there were people that were saying that Christians, because they were forgiven, could live any way they wanted to. And Paul... Um, Paul wanted to address that, and so he answers his own question by saying in verses 3 and 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him. Uh, we were therefore buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's using the picture of baptism. He's also using the picture of burial uh, and, and resurrection to illustrate that we have been united to Jesus Christ. We died with Christ. Uh, and in so doing, we died to our old life that was dominated and controlled by sin. Before you came to Christ, sin was your master. You weren't as bad as you could be, but you did not love God. Uh, you only loved yourself. And um, now, 
in Christ, you have been raised to a new life, Paul says, so that we might live a totally new, transformed life. Or as he says there in verse 4, that we too might walk in newness of life. Without going into the nuts and bolts of Romans 6, what Paul is saying here is summed up very nicely in verse 6. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In other words, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have been freed from your slavery to sin and you can now live an obedient, godly, repentant, and repenting life in Christ. And so then Paul, being a good preacher, makes a final application. Well, not the final application, because the final application, well, we heard from, from uh, Alan in his prayer. But he makes this application in verses 12 and 13. He said, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. In other words, don't let it be king. Don't let it be boss. Don't let it steer your life to make you obey His passions. Verse 13, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. In other words, you have been transformed. Just as that water was transformed into wine, so you now have a new life in Jesus Christ. So he could say, don't, let, don't use your eyes as instruments of sin. Do not use your tongue and your lips as instruments of sin. Do not use your hands or anything else as instruments of sin. Because you have a new life in Jesus Christ. Paul's saying here in verses 12 and 13, believe the facts. The fact is, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are set free from sin and are free to walk in newness of life. The transformed life that you have in Jesus Christ means that you no longer um, have to continue in sin no matter how tightly that sin has you in its grip. In fact, because you have a new life in Jesus Christ, it is unnatural for you to love sin. It is unnatural for you to offer your, yourself as an instrument of sin. You are going against your new nature that you have in Jesus Christ. You're still a sinner. We still have the flesh. But you have a new nature in Jesus Christ. In other words... For you to live in sin is not just an inconsistency, but it is a contradiction in terms. Have you ever heard of a, of a dog meowing? Or a cat barking? It's unnatural. And so it is unnatural for a Christian who has been transformed from death to life from being a child of Satan into a child of God, to love and continue in sin. You have been transformed in Jesus Christ. Now, since the wine was transformed from water, 
you might expect that the wine would be a bit watered down. But just the opposite was the case. In fact, and I'm going back to, uh, to John chapter 2 here. Uh, it's kind of hum- humorous to listen to the master of the feast congratulate the bridegroom for saving the best wine until, uh, until the last. Because the bridegroom is clueless. Look at verses 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The wine Jesus transformed tasted better. It was of a better quality than the original wine. And this is very important. The salvation that Jesus Christ has secured for us by His death and by His resurrection is better than the life that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. Our salvation far surpasses the life that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden. You say, how can that be? Or in Jesus Christ, we stand in a better place. We stand in an infinitely better place. Uh, Adam and Eve, it was possible for them to lose their standing with God. It is impossible for us to lose our standing with God because our standing with God is secured by Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve had to earn their life with God through their obedience. But our life with God is a free gift that cannot a free gift from God that cannot be revoked. Their failure to obey led to a separation from God. But our sins have already been punished by Jesus Christ, so that we now so that we know that there is now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, regardless of the sin, regardless of how guilty you may feel because of that sin. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is, therefore, no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. To conclude, I hope that it is evident to you that Christ is all-powerful. Just as He transformed that ordinary water into the finest quality of wine, so He is able to transform everyone here in this room. No matter how deeply rooted your sin, no matter how many times you have failed, no matter how great your sin Christ is all-powerful. And Christ came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. He came just as He transformed that water into wine to transform us, to transform you. This first miracle that He did uh, in Cana of Galilee Verse 11 says, It manifested His glory, 
and His disciples believed in Him. This first miracle at this wedding feast is your promise that He will transform you. Do you believe this as we pray together? Almighty God, we thank You for this miracle at this wedding feast. For in it, we see the miracle of our salvation. The miracle of our stony, dead hearts regenerated. The miracle of our uh, self-consumed hearts broken and crucified with Christ so that we uh, are now living a new life in Him. Father, I know that we live in a world and in bodies that are... Um, that uh, are easily discouraged. Father, I pray that You would um, encourage the, the brokenhearted. Father, I pray that You would remind us that through the, the grace of repentance that You will transform us, change us, and uh, make us more and more like Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray in His name. Amen.